Talk Shoes. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Sink. This is October 29th, 2011, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Thank you for listening. Tonight I have a man that I really don't know here tonight, but I feel like I've known him for a long time already. It, it's, um, I, I've, I've, when my server crashed, um, two months ago back in September, he wrote me a nice note. And, and then I heard him on Carolyn Yeager's program, and I really liked what I heard. He knows a lot about Germany and World War II and, and German art, German culture, German economics, and, and the actual um, events of the war, which is, I think, where, where we're going to um, concentrate tonight is on World War II, on, on National Socialist Germany, on Adolf Hitler's true intentions aside from the Jewish propaganda. And and Rodney is Rodney Martin is the editor and writer at Worldview Foundations, which is wvfoundations all one word dot org. Hello, Rodney. It's nice to have you on the program. Thank you, Bill, and thank you for the invitations. And uh, I I've surely appreciate it. And I've been a fan of your site and your program. And I I feel like I've known you uh, for a long time uh, uh, as well. Well, thank you. I, I um, yeah, you know, I heard you on Carolyn's pro. I think for the first time about three or four weeks ago, you were talking about um, German art and culture, and and um, you, you just sounded like you knew your topic, and and you sounded really true to heart, and and I really appreciated that. Well, yeah, I've been I have been a, a student of that, and let's call it that time period and that uh, and that civilization, and I know there are. Many that will not even call a, call the Third Reich a civilization, but I like to say that great civilizations leave us lasting legacies, and the Third Reich has left us many lasting uh, legacies. And uh, the fact that there is still a concerted effort, some 70 years after uh, you know the end of the Third Reich, to suppress every vestige of the legacy left behind from. You know, from you know, you know, you know, from from the you know actual uh, correct record of the events, you know, to the arts, to the culture, you know, to the music, to the film. That says a lot about the impact that that civilization uh, would have on society had it prevailed, and had and the impact it would have on civilization if a true accounting uh, of its intents and goals and objectives, you know, w- would be told in the amongst the broader populace. Well, well, I've seen, you know, over the past couple of years, and and especially with YouTube, I've seen some some um, some strong cultural films coming out of the Baltic states and Greece and and states that have had a lot of pain and suffering, right, you know, under the Jewish thumb that that has crushed Europe for a hundred years now, and and um, they're, they're small, right? On, on a grand scale, I really believe that Nazi Germany was, and I shouldn't call it Nazi Germany, I'm sorry, it's just a force I have it. National Socialist Germany was the last gasp on a grand scale of classical Western Christian civilization. I really believe that. That, 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 you're, you're absolutely correct. And let's, let's, you know, let's explain that. A lot of, a lot of, you know, you'll, you'll see in the media, and of course that's on purpose. But in, you know, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and even Ukraine, you know, they were under the boot of, of, of Judeo-communism and, and bore the brunt of having their religion and their freedom suppressed for so long. And people are – there are clips, you know, and people can see this for themselves. It's hard work to do research and correct the record 
but I'm going to make a lot of these clips and films footage available. When, and I'm skipping ahead of the program. I know we're going to go kind of out of order, which I think is kind of uh, uh, is good. When the German Wehrmacht moved in and invaded uh, the Soviet Union as a preemptive action, and it's very important for people to understand that it was a preemptive uh, action before the Soviet Red Army rolled into uh, Western Europe uh, in 41, uh, Adolf Hitler and the Wehrmacht essentially beat Stalin to the punch. You see the Ukrainians. You see the Latvians, particularly the Lithuanians, welcoming and waiting on the streets, waiting on the streets for the Wehrmacht advance units, which are which were normally, you know, the uh, cavalry units, reconnaissance units, coming into the cities, and they were handing them flowers. Everything that Dick Cheney and his uh, and neocon Jewish cabal said would happen in Iraq, which didn't happen, did happen in the Baltics and in Ukraine and such. Uh, when the Wehrmacht was, was, was liberating those nations of the evil empire. I like to say that the Wehrmacht were the first fighters of communism. They had it right. It took the United States, you know, you heard Reagan talking about the evil empire in the 1980s. Well, duh, we had a Western Christian army some 12 miles away from the Kremlin, and we bailed out the communists. Why? Well, well we well, all well. know the answer is. I'm sorry, I see Reagan as all propaganda because we had become communists by that time. No, I agree with you. I, I, I agree that it was all hyperbole. But, I, again, I go back to my fundamental premise is the, the real fighters of communism were the Wehrmacht because they were Absolutely. going to pull that regime down in 1941. There, you know, they'd only been in existence a mere 30 years. Without a doubt. And so those, those were the first. And, uh, you know, another, another you know, people can go further. The peoples, the peasants. In Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Belarusia, uh, Ukraine, they had not had Christian service or communion per se in some 30 years. Their churches had been ransacked and closed. Stalin only opened them as a propaganda tool. He used nationalism, which is completely against the communist creed, to rally people to fight. Even that didn't really work. But you, there are clips and photographs of Wehrmacht chaplains giving communion and religious services to Ukrainians, to Lithuanians, to Latvians, to Estonians. The first religious services uh, in those in those nations in 30 years, and they were performed by Wehrmacht military chaplains. And those pictures exist, and there are news clips of those uh, in existence. And you know, and so so the great big lie that National Socialists and like you, uh, National Socialists Germany, like you, Bill. I reject the term Nazi. That's you know that's a Jewish term used to demonize and to perpetuate the, the lie that it was that National Socialist Germany was inherently anti-Christian and was you know somehow satanic and wrapped up in the occult. That's another big lie because it was inherent. That's inherently wrong. You can ask the people, particularly there are people right here. I can tell you right now, Bill, because I talked to them and I'm doing their oral history. Um, Lithuania, Lithuanian descent. So when the German army pulled back and were in, was in retreat from the Red Army, their family members followed the Wehrmacht. Well, well right. They, they saw the they saw Christian Germany, and it was Christian Germany as a savior from the, the Bolshevik oppression. And there, there should be no doubt. But Absolutely. but the, the the real news footage and and the the real pictures are, are suppressed. Anything that portrays National Socialist Germany in a good light, in a positive light, the, the Jewish 
um, Zionist world government, if you want to call it that, it's not really a government, in, in, but it's a de facto government, that they have been able, through their control over all Western governments and all Western media, to, to write history and, and a very perverted um, view of history. And, and it, it's all propaganda. And, and everything positive about National Socialist Germany has been 100% suppressed from the mainstream media. If you don't portray Adolf Hitler as anything but a devil, that then you're you're evil, and and they'll they'll expel you from 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 their presence. Well, they go a step further than just expelling you. They will go after you personally. They will go after your livelihood. They will go after your worldly possessions. And if that doesn't work, in some cases, you have organizations, militant organizations, that will go after your life. There's been there's been homes and offices. The late Hans Schmidt, you know, uh, facility was firebombed, burned down. So it, it goes beyond it goes beyond that, and you know there's a reason for that. And uh, if uh, if if a uh, person or group's ideas cannot stand the light of sunshine, and they have to resort to uh, emotionally charged oversimplifications and outright lies and distortions, and using the force of government, which is what happened since May 7, 1945, to say you will believe or else. You know something's wrong, and that's what led to my questioning the official story from the time I was relatively young, a young student, and I've been studying this period for uh, just over 25 years. And it got me in a lot of trouble in very liberal, you know, universities uh, because I would challenge the stated uh, 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 story, but I would do it a little differently. I would do it by merely just asking questions. And uh, challenging the story by asking questions, you know, that just just doesn't seem it just doesn't uh, seem right. And what was in, what was always interesting too, Bill. I'm a, again, we're going out of order and and uh, kind of having an informal t- chat. Is liberal professor was always willing to talk about the massive death uh, tolls in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the fire bombings of Tokyo, but if you would bring up the fact that there was, you know, at least you know, 150,000 to 200,000 Germans that were essentially melted to death in the Dresden bombing, they would immediately jump jump on you. Isn't that interesting and odd? Well, well, the enemies of our race and culture have always exacerbated the sufferings of Jews and aliens, and, and they've always offhandedly dismissed at any sufferings by whites. That, Absolutely. That's, you know, that, that's been their really, for... I had a very proud moment. Um, last last evening, uh, uh, we chose my family, my wife, and we chose to homeschool our children for a whole lot of reasons: safety, culture, you know, just a whole lot of reasons. Uh, you know, we just do not want organizations like uh, uh, the SPLC and such, you know, instilling curriculum and such. When my kids are older, if they chose to go a different path, I hope they don't. But that will be uh, that will be their choice. However, after what happened last night, which I'm going to explain to you, I just don't think that's going to happen. We went out for a, a movie night. We usually uh, we're, we're, we, we pick what we want to watch, but there's this animated movie out uh, called Puss in Boots, and it's a it's a break off some of the traditional stories, you know, Puss in Boots, Humpty Dumpty, and all of that. But always after we do these movies, I have a discussion with my kids, which range from nine year old nine years old to seventeen about. What did they see in the movie? What distortions did they see in the movie and such? Well, this movie was in an adjacent community, so we had about, oh, a 20-minute 
30-minute drive home. As soon as we got in the car and got out of the parking, before I even had asked the question, my nine-year-old said, Dad, the uh, Jack and Jill, bear in mind this, this animated uh, movie last night, is a combination of Humpty Dumpty, Puss in Boots, Jack and the Beanstalk, and Jack and Jill. They combined all of those stories into a montage, and, of course, I noticed there was a lot of Levenbaums and Coens in the credits, you know, in the writing credits and the story and the development. But uh, anyway, and, of course, the hero was, of course, a mestizo uh, character who plays the voice of uh, Puss in Boots. And, uh, but the characters that played Jack and Jill, who had, the, who had the magic beans to make the beanstalk, were portrayed by two white, and they used every stereotypical anti-white stereotype imaginable. Uh, over-white, toothless, hillbilly, ignorant, violent, every stereotypical uh, uh, application that could be applied was applied to those two characters, Bill. And my nine-year-old daughter, as soon as we got in the car, said, Jack and Jill must have been Germans, Dad. And I said, why? And she says, Look at how they made fun and distorted them and as opposed to all of the other characters. And Jack and Jill were kids in the real story. And you know what? I just smiled and I said, you know what, to myself, my kids are going to be okay. Because they picked up on it. <laughs> my nine-year-old picked up on it. Here's Hollywood using animated, a kid's animated movie to instill that whites are morbidly, you know, obese, and, of course, and, uh, you know, we do have that problem in America, but that's a perpetuation of the programming that we've had for the last 70 years. But they use, I mean, this is just another example of why white families need to get the rabbi box out of the living room and be involved with their children from, from cradle to their grave, meaning the parents. Absolutely, and and it's it's the television. The last three generations, I think, were probably raised on television. My generation, maybe being the first of them, my mother in, had to go out to work in, in the inflation of the late sixties and and the Nixon years. She she was forced into the workplace, and and we were raised on television. And and what? my my children were in turn raised on television because I I was stupid enough to think it was normal, right? And, and well, I'm a believer that forcing ending the uh, ending the tradition of the single bread earner was not by accident, and it was not. Uh, I think that was clearly. Uh, I do not believe that was by accident at all. Because oh, there's I been no serious attempt. To, there's been no serious attempt to end that. We want dependency. We want. We want the. Uh, we want the everything to be saying enhance your calm. All is well. We will tell you what is good for you. And of course, then the, then of course the idiot box says uh, the next thing was the absolute. You know, first was the destruction of the single earner family, and then came the destruction of the actual family itself. The father was not important. You can have uh, you know a female could have uh, six kids from six different uh, fathers, and that did not matter. The only thing a father was good for was to collect welfare, uh, collect child support checks from maybe if not the state would kick in a, a welfare check. And uh, and then you would get a bonus if you had more children, preferably preferably if there was race mixing going on, of course. And, and that same pattern in 19-teens and 1920s Germany is what made Adolf Hitler, is it not? It, it's what made Goebbels. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I've been talking, I've been alluding to this as we talked about the 
arts and culture, uh, and I can't say this enough, and I'm going to say it again tonight. Weimar Germany was the prototype of what became the United States. Well, well I think it was already uh, – I'm sorry. I think it was already going on here, but we didn't notice it. And, and I, think well, I, I, think, I think it was in the works. I think it was clearly in the works, Bill, but it, it got worse because what happened was the National Socialist government upset the apple cart in Germany. And so what happened was all of those, all of those dangerous artisans and such left Germany in 1933 and 1934, the dangerous ones, because there was two you know, very important acts of legislation by the Reichstag. There was the Civil Service Restoration Act, and then there was the Enabling Act. And all of those artisans and such, you know, they weren't locked up in gas and concentration camps. I and mean, that's a foul. That's absolutely bogus. They all came to the United States. They set up support systems. We've heard of the Underground Railroad uh, during the American Civil War. Well, there was an Underground Railroad between Germany and the United States. They left Germany as soon as they hit shores in New York. They either had jobs in the New York entertainment industry. And, of course, at this time, in the United States, the entertainment industry was split between New York and Hollywood. It wasn't completely dominated by Hollywood at that time. There was already housing set up. There was jobs set up. And so that's actually where it solidified. There's no doubt about it, Bill, that it was in progress, but it hadn't gotten its foothold. But what happened was the National Socialist government actually hastened it, hastened it, and the United States didn't have enough gumption to say, wait a minute, you know, we're getting all the trash that, you know, that got cleaned out of Germany. You know, we shouldn't have let it in. You know, there was that famous ship, and I can't remember the name right well, off Well, at that very time, we had a communist president, I mean, Franklin Absolutely. Roosevelt. At that very time, we, we had the whole Frankfurt School was brought here but by, the, um, by, by Columbia at, at the behest of, of the Rockefellers. Absolutely. You're, 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 you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. And that, that cabal only got stronger when the garbage from Weimar was kicked out of Germany in 33 and 34 and maybe early 35. But I, I, I think that they were, oh, they got so much stronger. And of course, you know, people like Charles Lindbergh and, you know, the real Americans that tried to put up a fight, you know, they were outside of power. Well, well, you know how I see that, Rodney? I, I can make a correlation to the New Testament. And in 1914, we did the Jews' bidding, and they made us twice fold the child of hell. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's two times that, you know, between 1900 and, you know, in 1945, in which uh, essentially we committed genocide on ourselves. At, at the, at, you, know, you know, while the puppet masters were sitting there laughing. And then, of course, there's been a different type of genocide since 1945 in the term, in, in, in the form of uh, miscegenation and uh, all this multiculturalism. And so, you know, when, when I when I hear these rural leaders talk about, you know, now in 2010 and 2000, oh, multiculturalism a failure? Well, duh. Hello, you know, <laughs> it was a, you know a little too late now. I mean, look at the birth rates in in, in Europe and the United States. Uh, well, well yeah, that's because the men are sleeping with men and the women are sleeping with women, and and that's part of the the um the same satanic agenda. Yeah, but you know these these mealy mouth you know West you know these leaders that say multiculturalism is a fail, they won't address the overall problem. Talk about that same issue at the same time. You know, you had Angela Merkel, you know, the occupied government chancellor, will say multiculturalism is a failure. 
but her vice chancellor, uh, Guido Listerel, is an openly homosexual who has taken his gay lover on trips at the German government expense. So, you know, you won't, they, won't, they won't, you know, say that, what the complete problem is. And I've said before, the economics, we talk about this world economic catastrophe that started in 08. Well, it started before that. The economics are easy to fix. The National Socialist government proved that you can fix the economics rather easily. They did it in about 30 months. Just throw the wolves out of their treasury. Absolutely. It's the culture. And I, I like you, you remember during the, you know, the, the famous economic statement that was made when, when Clinton was running for office, it's the economy stupid. Well, I like to say it's the culture stupid. It's the culture that will kill your society. Well, well, absolutely, and culture is a racial construct. I, I do not see absolutely. it as a societal construct. Absolutely, construct. absolutely, absolutely. Did Yugoslavia have a actual culture? No, they did not. Yugoslavia did not have any unifying culture at all. At all, they fell apart. They, you cannot do that. It's, you know, there, there is no place you can point in history. Find me one. I'm waiting for someone to find me one where a multicultural or multi-ethnic state has been successful. And, you know, I'm sorry. That's just the facts. Let's get beyond the emotionalism and the way we want things to be. And that's what, you know, the liberal and the Marxists want, the way things we want things to be. The Soviet Union is another example. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And for the most part, those nations, those multicultural, multi-ethnic nations, are always held together at the point of a gun. The government telling people that they have to put their racial, who they are, in second place or third place or fourth place and be something that they are not and accept things that are inherently foreign to them. It doesn't well, work. Well, that's the Talmudic agenda, and, and the Talmudic Absolutely. agenda is the destruction of all national borders and all national, uh, all distinct ethnicities and cultures, especially white ethnicity, ethnicities and cultures, and, and that's been their agenda for, for thousands of years, and, and with the French Revolution in Europe, they've been able to pull it off, and, and yeah, yeah, Adolf Hitler understood it. Isn't it interesting that... Uh, South Africa had sanctions and stuff, and we, you know, the nation, the, the, uh, you know, the, the nations were just were, uh, at, you know, frothing at the mouth about South Africa. But yet Israel, you know, has reaffirmed itself recently that it is a ethnic, a Jewish ethnic nation only, and recently enacted loyalty oaths to the Jewish nation only. And no well, one I like to call it a, a Jewish racist su supremacist state. That's what it is. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But that's it, the it, language it, they would use with me, and and that that's yeah, you know, hold the mirror up. I, I mean, we can't be scared of their words. We have to use them against you know, them. And we talked about let's let's follow that line. Let's follow that example. You know, South Africa faced incredible pressure because of the uh, townships and such. Well, what do you call Gaza? Not that I'm not that I'm any. Uh, uh, you, know, you know, you know, sympathetic because I understand you know what's happening in Europe with the influx of, of Arabs, and you know that, that you know that they need to go back to their homelands. And Europe needs to be a European continent. The United States was founded as a European-based continent. It needs to be. It needs to go back to those premises. And uh, you know, this, this, this issue about immigration, where people immigrate to nations, and then the nations have to change their cultural way of life to accommodate the new immigrants. And, of course, now 
the multiculturalists don't even believe in any form of immigration. Just come on in and that's it. It's it's basically anarchy. Uh, well, well, yeah, but nobody's doing it in China. Nobody's doing it in China where two billion yellow people live. Yeah. Well, bear in mind too, uh, uh, it's it's cultural genocide. Let's call it what it is. And I'm of course it is. To topic, topic. You know, I've I've used, I've used this. I believe there's still an article on my uh, website. Uh, we see the prime example of cultural genocide that took place by the Allied Control Council in Germany between you know May of 1945. You know, I would say probably they got the job done by about 1960. All vestiges of what had been um, uh, Germany uh, ceased to exist by about 1960. You know, even with the decadence and the and the sleaze of Weimar, uh, Weimar faced a severe backlash. Uh, you know, there were musicians, traditional musicians, which I had covered in my recent program with Carolyn Igger. There, there was pushback, even before the National Socialists, as early as 1919, 1920, 1921. There was a lot of pushback at the decadence in Weimar. The only thing is Weimar, uh, the foreigners, and that's what Weimar was, it was a foreign-influenced entity that had taken over the government uh, when Scheidemann proclaimed it to be a republic, per se, and uh, and that was a sham. But anyway, uh, there was still pushback. What the Allied Control Council did was, first of all, it stole another 35, 38% of German territory, ethnically cleansed, you know, East Prussia, Silesia, Pomerania, uh, pulled people out of those traditional lands, completely resettled the populace. And then they did something that wasn't even done after World War One. They attacked fundamental and foundational German customs and traditions that had been in place for centuries and completely re, what I like to say, rewired the hard drive of the German psyche. And now you have people that may have German DNA, but from a cultural point of view, they're not Germans anymore. Well, well they're Jews between the ears, but we, so are most Americans. Well, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And uh, interestingly, interestingly, and I draw this comparison to the article on my website. What we saw when the wall came down and uh, the former East Germany, the GDR, you know, became part of West Germany or the end of whatever that create thing is over there, you found out that a lot of those people living in the GDR still had some vestiges of the old German cultures and traditions. So if you want to go someplace in Germany today, and that's why the NPD is still stronger in East Germany than it is in West Germany because a lot of those cultures and traditions, the people in the East actually, because, you know, the, you know, communism has to be, you know, suppress people and suppress ideas. And again, I, you know, communism and capitalism are two sides of the same dime. But, uh, you've seen that, uh, you know, the, the people that were freed when the GDR collapsed, those uh, vestiges of the old German culture and traditions, you see more of it in the east, in the eastern uh, provinces than you do uh, in the west. The west has been completely, completely, you know, uh, uh, culturally erased. Um, I like to use the example when I was preparing for my uh, talk, uh, my preparation for my show on German music, I, I did a search on as many German radio stations as I could find that actually web streamed their programming, and it took me a good three or four days. And uh, almost all of the music was non-German. 
Oh, yeah, it was all punk rock, Americanized, or Turkish. Well, well, that's what pop culture does. It destroys all cultures because it's not a culture. It, it's it's the Talmudic. It, it's it's a Talmudic invention. It, it's it's it, it's impossible for me to describe. I can't even come up with the right adjectives. Well, <laughs> it, you know, you know the, the stuff there is getting kind of interesting. I watched this playbook, and a lot of some of the playbooks aren't working. So now you see you see these purveyors of garbage. Now you see them dust off these age-old stories, and I, I do read a lot of European media and foreign media. It's kind of interesting to see how they're treating Hungary, which actually, uh, uh, you know, had elections and swung way, almost back to the way things were, uh, you know, during the war. They rewrote the Constitution, essentially outlawed homosexuality, and, uh, I mean, it's really interesting, and, you know, Hungary is now almost a pariah state of this thing called the European Union. But now they're running all these old stories, all these old falsehoods. They've recently reattacked uh, Adolf Hitler's war record. Now they're saying that his blindness from the gas attack in 1918 had nothing to do with a gas attack. It had to do with uh, psychological reasons because he was scared and running. He never had any frontline service. Well, that's absolutely incorrect. There are records of his discussion with the uh, Britain, British, I believe it was the British Foreign Secretary at the Berghof where they were discussing where they were on different sides of the line, and the British Foreign Secretary talked about Hitler's mastery of the, of the World War I front line showing where he had run dispatches, and a dispatch runner was an inherently dangerous position in World War I, and we know from records that Hitler had residual eyesight problems as a result of the mustard gas, he wore his visor cap down very low because the sunlight bothered his eyes as a result of damage from the mustard gas attack. And all of this has been well documented. But you get some paid, you know, stooge to write something up based on nothing. And so they're going back, and the fact that they still have to go back and write what is essentially slander, and what I always found was interesting is, in Germany, they have this law called if you slander the dead, you could be charged. Well, how come no one has charged anybody for slandering the dead, Adolf Hitler? I, I just thought that was – I always found that to be uh, uh, interesting. And, of course, recently the recent revelation that uh, Adolf Hitler personally, personally planned the 1934 uh, assassination of Austrian Chancellor Dolphus on that first Austrian National Socialist coup attempt when Adolf Hitler wasn't even, quote, the Fuhrer yet. He was still the Chancellor in a coalition government, and von Hindenburg wasn't even dead yet. I mean, there was absolutely no evidence to prove that at all, quite the opposite. But yet they keep bringing up all of these lies and distortions to keep hammering away and hammering away, and it's almost, it's, it's, it's almost comical and amusing and what's interesting when they run these hit pieces, no, now it's gotten so bad that no real historian will come up and say, oh, yes, that's true. You can find no follow-up statements from any, not even of the Stoogie uh, 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 historians such as the ones in England, will say, oh, yes, that's true. Well, well, if they don't try to turn Hitler into a Jew like they've tried to turn Christ into a Jew, that then they try to discredit him in other ways. The same thing with Thomas Jefferson and George Washington to a lesser degree, but they have to keep doing that because if anybody ever 
studies Adolf Hitler's cultural and economic policies, who's in a position to implement or, or do anything anywhere, the Jews are in trouble. They're in big trouble. Yeah. And they Absolutely. know that. They understand yeah. that. Yeah, they, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, it's interesting. As a matter of fact, there was an article I saw that had come across, you know, Der Spiegel, which is about as red as you can get, revisiting the, the Reichstag fire and the fact that the German-occupied government had gone back not too long ago and had cleared van der Lubbe's uh, name, which was, you know, interesting. I mean, even some of the quote-unquote anti-Hitler uh, historians had come to conclude that uh, had, you know, had, had long dismissed the old story that Hermann Goering and, you know, that that fire was set by the National Socialists, that it was indeed set by the communists uh, in an attempt to try to start a revolution against the new National Socialist government, and it backfired. It galvanized public support against the communists. But it's just amazing that they keep this stuff up. Can we talk a little bit about some of the issues in the war? Because I had heard your debate with this person who's talked about Hitler being a Rothschild agent, and he keeps bringing up the issue of Dunkirk and some of the issues with the Soviet with the Soviet campaign, Barbarossa, and I eagerly have been wanting to talk to you about those. Well, well, right, and, and you know, I, I've never claimed to be an expert on World War II, right? I, I, it, it's a hobby of mine, and, and the programs that I did on, on my Mein Kampf project, you, you know, I really endeavored to present a lot of things from, from World War II and from early 20th century history that set the record straight, but that doesn't mean I'm an expert on the, the battlefield mechanics and, and the strategies of the war. I mean, no man can know everything, right? And I'm really a biblical history scholar. Mm -hmm. Well, well um, I, I agreed to go on with Condit, and I had about 24 hours notice, maybe 36 hours notice of when the program was going to be, so the only way I could really prepare was to go to his website. I didn't watch the the um the flick, but even with my lack of knowledge in certain areas concerning Dunkirk, the Battle of Moscow, which I admit, the um Condit couldn't couldn't overcome my questions with any amount of, of convincing proof. He has an agenda, he has certain talking points. He can't discuss anything intelligently outside of his talking points. He is the Rothschild agent. I'm fully yeah. convinced of that. And, and yes, take the ball to run. I'd love that, Claire. Okay. His first issue was he got into the war and he talked about Dunkirk. Okay, not too terribly long ago, there was an article written, and this has been my position for a long time, and there was a British uh, military. He was an ex-British Army. I believe he was a colonel. He's now a, a, a professor someplace. I don't believe he's at the War College. But he finally said, and I had written an essay back when I was at university, saying, you know, what is this issue at Dunkirk? Dunkirk was a tremendous defeat for the British Expeditionary Force. There is a big hoopla that the fact that the Wehrmacht, the Panzers, came and stopped the Luftwaffe, uh, you know, they said the Goering asked they let the Luftwaffe smash him and that some 300,000 uh, uh, British Army troops were allowed, were allowed to escape across the channel. Well, this British Army colonel, and I have to find the uh, article, and I'll be happy to email it to you when I find it. I have it saved someplace. But this coincides with what I had been talking about, and I actually brought this up in one of my uh, uh, classes some 20 years ago. Dunkirk, on the surface, 
militarily, you ask any soldier, was a tremendous defeat for the British. One, they lost, they were crippled. They, lost, they left all of their equipment, ammunition. The only thing they got back across the channel was their men and their uniforms and a large number of their heavy transports that they'd sent over were actually left in Dunkirk Harbor. Those were So the fact that, you know, Dunkirk, you know, they said that Hitler let, uh, 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 you know, 300,000 British troops to go across. I'm not even convinced that the number was 300,000 if we were to actually do some historical uh, accounts because the British have sealed a huge amount of their World War II records until even after I'm dead later this uh, century. But from a military point of view, Dunkirk was not a win. It's been spun. Historically, there's been this spin that, that Dunkirk was some sort of win. Well, let's see. You leave all your heavy equipment, your tanks, your, your uh, anti-aircraft weapons, all of your you know, heavy munitions and ammunition on the beach. The Germans capture it. You barely get your, you know, some of your expeditionary force. None of your allies, you leave your French your allies behind. There's very few of your French you left behind. Uh, and so that's considered some sort of win. I think not. Secondly, as in any war, there are always political ramifications. It was a historical fact that Hitler really did not have a bone to pick with England. And at this time at Dunkirk, Neville Chamberlain was still the British prime minister. Now, Hitler was not the fool that everybody makes him out to be. Chamberlain, Hitler probably had the political instincts to know that Chamberlain really did not want to fight that war. It was, you know, England went into that war against, you know, there wasn't a lot of public support for it. And uh, with France now gone, the fact that they're able to get their expeditionary force back across, but they didn't have any of their heavy equipment and such, Britain was out on their feet. It was prime time politically to... Uh, to uh, uh, approach uh, England, you know, for uh, for a peace settlement, which happened. It was entitled "A Last Appeal to Reason to Britain." Hitler was always, always focused on the East, always. So this I, this business this business that this gentleman has, and I'll use the term gentleman uh, loosely about Dunkirk, you know, with Hitler throwing the fight, was wrong. It was one militarily. It was a it was a victory. Two, it was a political move. You know, and, and three, uh, you know, and three again, it has to do with the overall uh, with the overall objectives of the war. Also, let me throw something else out just for just just for laughs. Had the Wehrmacht moved the Panzer in on the beach and just massacred the British Expeditionary Force, there probably would have been a count four war crime at Nuremberg. <laughs> Well, well, I had brought up Hitler's last appeal reason, which was made some weeks, I think about six weeks after Dunkirk, yeah. as, as proof that Hitler did not want war with Britain, and, and Condit couldn't, couldn't effectively answer it. He could only keep circling around with circular arguments back to yeah. the beginning. And, and um, it, 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 it proves that he has an agenda. People with an agenda don't care about the truth. Yeah, well, there's some confusion in the facts, but what I wanted to address is that Dunkirk was not some miraculous win for the British and a loss to the Germans. If you look at what was left on that beach and look at the reports, look at the German newsreels, and universally, the German newsreels by far 
were more accurate and more widely regarded than the Allied ones because the newsreel cameras actually – I can make the case that the first embedded journalists happened with the Wehrmacht. We talked about embedded journalists in Iraq. <laughs> that was nothing new. There were Wehrmacht – there were, you know, there, there were – uh, the German newsreels, you know, were right there. I mean, you can look at, you know, the June, you know, 1940 newsreels, German newsreels, and see, you know, see footage on the Dunkirk beach. Not to mention you can read the Wehrmacht reports of the tremendous, all the equipment that was left behind. The British Army was, dist- was broken. It was broken. It was not a fighting force. It did not become a, a, a formidable fighting force, really, until... Roosevelt started resupplying it covertly and, uh, and with the backup and the entry of the United States into the war after Pearl Harbor and really not until probably um, 43. They did not recover. Well, well, right. If it wasn't for the United States, Germany would, um, would rule Europe today and under some direct successor of Adolf Hitler. I'm, I'm convinced. Yeah. And, you know, let's touch on that really quick. You know, we hear about this all the time. We even see some of the Allied propaganda that uh, that the German aim was to rule the world, smash Christianity, the churches were all closed. That's the Jewish Hollywood propaganda. There was no desire. There was no desire to rule the world at all. There was a desire to smash Judeo-Bolshevism, and that's, you know, that's a good thing. There was no desire to export national socialism, unlike communism, which had a, a stated aim to rule the world and to take over the world, and hypercapitalism, essentially, which does the same thing. And uh, you know, so it, it, that was all that was all uh, uh, hogwash uh, as well. Now, if I get to the other point that this uh, this gentleman made uh, with regard to you know the Soviet invasion. Why did uh, you know Hitler invade the Soviet Union in a couple of the campaigns in the in, in the Soviet Union? Well, one that was preemptive. Even well, well, I Soviet was absolutely hoping he'd go there, but he didn't. He he skipped right ahead to the Battle of Moscow, right? Well, he touched on it, but you know the, the Soviet the Soviet Barbarossa was a preemptive uh, attack. Uh, absolutely. You know, Stalin had been playing footsie early on, even during the Czech uh, crisis of '38. Uh, uh, Stalin had offered. To basically put, I think it was 138 divisions. I believe it was 138 divisions ready to attack through Poland. And uh, of course, you had Poland playing footsie, playing all sides against the center. And uh, we can talk about Poland here in a little bit. But uh, it was very clear. It was very clear what Stalin. And even now, recently, particularly in the last six to seven months, the uh, Russians, uh, the Russians, Russian uh, academics have stated openly. And former Russian generals have stated openly that they've got into former Red Army archives that the battle plans were drawn. That, you know, and that's why the you know the Wehrmacht ran into so many huge numbers of Soviet divisions uh, in the into Western in the Western Soviet Union was that the preparations were being made, uh, and that's why there was uh, the Soviets were just rushing uh, raw materials uh, to Germany to trying to try to you know forego. Uh, uh, any sort of preemption because they were preparing their own uh, they were preparing their own attack as well. But I remember uh, they talked about the attack on Moscow. He seemed to think that that was very important. It's very important to understand that uh, first of all, rightfully so. And I heard it from none other than a current Bundeswehr uh, general, 
and he's actually a, an academic in Germany, and he talked about Hitler being the first – I'm surprised he hasn't been locked up in jail in Germany. And I can't remember his name right offhand, but he said Hitler was the first modern military commander. And to hear a Bundeswehr officer saying this, he said that Hitler realized – and I'm sitting here listening to this guy because it's been you know, something that I've talked about for a long time. He realized that the Soviet Union could be defeated by a smaller nation like Germany, not by the traditional means of charging through the center, capturing the capital, raising your flag on the – on the uh, on the Kremlin, that was irrelevant. Well, which is what the German generals wanted to do. The German general, there was clearly a conflict between the German generals Hitler. Hitler's plan was to cut off Stalin's ability to make war, and when you fight in the Soviet Union, you cut off their ability to make war by cutting off their resources. And, and that was my around. argument. I'm sorry, when when we yeah, were um, discussing yeah. Barbarossa, that was my argument that Hitler would have been victorious if they'd have followed his plan. And that follows its thinking in Stalingrad and the thinking, and he talked, he touched, he touched briefly about Stalingrad too, why Hitler had left the Sixth Army there. What people don't realize was while Paulus, you know, he forbid a retreat, Paulus' Sixth Army was tying up 75 Soviet divisions while it permitted the orderly pull out of the caucuses of three German armies down in the caucuses. I mean, there was a reason for all of this. So all of this spin we hear from, you know, you know, what we call the traditional story that Hitler was a madman, that he butchered the Sixth Army and all of this. this well, was, well, of course not. That's just too much propaganda. This was a strategic war. You had to beat the Soviets by cutting off their resources. So this wasn't a fact of Hitler losing and failing and attacking Moscow at the wrong time. It was the fact that actually Hitler came down ill. And when he was down ill, the generals redid the battle plan and, op and, and launched Operation Typhoon, which was the assault on Moscow at the worst time of year. And that was right. uh, and so it was absolutely it's absolutely foolish to uh, to assume that the failed assault on Moscow, first of all, that shouldn't even be laid on Hitler because he never believed that Moscow was important uh, to begin with. As a matter of fact, if you look at capitals and all that, Poland, you know, Poland was left to last in the Polish campaign. You know, this business of capitals and all of that, the first thing the Germans were went in and Poland was they looped around and came up around and surrounded it, and that was the very last of the of the major cities to to surrender. Well, well, one thing that people in the and some of the people in the chat would, and I, I would like to ask it to you anyway, and and that's um something that was used as a strong propaganda vehicle to strike fear in the hearts of the Slavic peoples in the East was Hitler's plan for Lebensraum in the East. Now, now I'm, you know, I'm a, a, a um, student of more ancient history, and I understand the struggle between the Slavs and the Germans going back to the, before the time of Christ. But, but um, it, it's Hitler understood that, Ger that, that Europe to the Black Sea, according to the Roman historian Tacitus, was all German at one time. It was considered that that was the extent of Germany in Roman times that that they understood, and and I think Hitler used that to to um, make a valid claim that Germany deserved Lebensraum in the East. And and what do you have to say about that plan? Well, clearly, and, and, clearly, you know, first of all, there is this mistaken and it's propaganda and it's, it, it's Judeo propaganda to say that the Germans were wanting to exterminate everybody, including the Slavs and such. Bear in mind, the Slavs fought the uh, Soviets and the communists 
extremely hard, and they were actually repressed by the communists as well. But there was there was a German plan, a pre, uh, you know, a post-war German plan. The Crimea was going to be incorporated into the German Reich. There were areas of the Ukraine, small areas in Ukraine that were going to be incorporated, very small areas. But let's keep something in mind. This is very critical. One of the reasons why the German Wehrmacht was so widely received in the Ukraine was in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in 1917, when the then Soviet, you know, the new Soviet Union sued for peace with the Germans. Yes. Ukraine got independence for its first time from the Russian Empire, and it was a result of the Germans. The Germans got created. The first Polish, you know, real Polish, modern Polish state was as a result of Brest-Litovsk and, and uh, the Ukraine. Ukraine was going to, was an independent country as a was going to be an independent country as a result of, of, of the Germans. So this business that the Germans were creating all these massacres and such in Ukraine is absolutely bogus. There are there are re, uh, commemorations in Ukraine today of Ukrainian volunteer SS divisions, just like there are in the Baltic states. So you know that those those things are bogus. There were anti-partisan uh, activities that took place in the Ukraine. That is absolutely true. That well, well anti-partisan activities are allowed even under the Geneva Convention, which that, Germany that is, followed. That is absolutely fair game. And, the, and, and bear in mind, the Soviet Union was not a signatory to the Geneva Convention. The Germans had high-level meetings when they were preparing for Barbarossa, and it was said, look, the Soviets are not a member of the Geneva Convention. Our soldiers are going to be very, very uh, open for a lot of horrendous atrocities. Be prepared. When the Soviet lines collapsed during the first Blitzkrieg going in, remember, Barbarossa was a three-pronged Blitzkrieg, Army Group North, Army Group Center, Army Group South. When the Soviet lines collapsed, Stalin purposely ordered soldiers to throw away their uniforms, put on civilian clothes, and to engage in some of the most atrocious behavior behind lines imaginable. Some of the most atrocious stuff. Let me tell you, if some of these activities had happened to U.S. soldiers in, in Iraq or Afghanistan, I venture to say even the most liberal American would say, go for it and, and condone some of the anti-partisan activities that were uh, employed by the, the German Wehrmacht. And they had special, in addition to the Einsatzgruppen units, which were called special action units, there were actual partisan brigades as well. And, well, uh, well, the same people that were con that, that that brought Stalin to power or, or afforded Stalin to power were the same people that were in control of the Western media. So, uh, well, I mean, you know, there is this famous there is this famous video, uh, uh, Bill, and I want to talk about this really quick. And it show it's talked about that it's a former Kriegsmarine German Kriegsmarine that shot this video, and it's in uh, Eastern I think it's in Eastern Belarus or, or Ukraine. I can't remember. What, and it supposedly shows an atrocity, a massacre in a ditch, and it shows uh, executions at a ditch. Watch that thing, and you, if you watch it with, and you listen to the spin, the narrator, oh, look at these atrocities, and look at all oh, the women and children being killed. If you turn the volume off and just watch it, because there's no volume on this, on this old film, and look at the, at the uh, film. It's all adults. It's all males. And you got people from the surrounding village who are there who are pointing out the partisans. 
It's not a massacre of a whole village. It's not a massacre of women and children and such. It's an anti-partisan activity, and the surrounding people from the village are there, and they're pointing out saying, that is an ex-commissar, that is an ex-NKVD officer, and that's what is taking place. Well, well, it was the Jewish Bolsheviks getting what they deserved. I, I, I don't, and, and they're sympathizers. Well, the old Russian proverb, revenge is a, de- uh, is a dish best served cold, and that's what happened in those uh, Western, uh, we could call them Western uh, European Slavic uh, nations. That's what happened. And, you know, the, you know, the Germans got blamed, uh, got blamed for a lot of corrective action that took place amongst the internal populace of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine, Belarusia, and such. And this is important, Bill. An occupying power is not supposed to mess with the internal affairs of the occupied nation. They're supposed to allow them the police and themselves and such. And, and Germany did that to a great extent. Well, hey, in Denmark, they had free elections all during the Danish occupation, and in fact, in Denmark, the elections, they elected a socialist government under German occupation. And guess what? It was allowed to take power and pass decrees and run the government. And, and the same thing in Czechoslovakia, what, where, um, what, where Hitler declared it a protectorate. Yes, yes. He, he declared yes. Bohemia a protectorate and, and let them yes. govern themselves. Yes, yes. yes. Unlike, unlike, let me draw a comparison on the occupation. If you look at the occupation policies and the ramifications of occupation, under between, say, 1939 to 1945, the German occupation, that impact. German troops withdrew, and when they left at the end of the war, those countries' particular culture and traditions were intact. When uh, Anglo-American occupation left Germany and Japan, were their respective cultures and traditions left intact? Absolutely not. Right, absolutely not. And Germany's re-education programs, that German culture has been destroyed. And, and everybody that comes out of China, I mean, I've spoken to um, quite a few, I mean, not dozens, but, but at, at least a dozen Germans over the last um, 15 years since my own awakening to, to the, um, what, what really went on in World War II. And, and um, they're, they're completely brainwashed. They're, they're, you may as well talk to um, somebody on the streets of Brooklyn uh, about the same thing. What I like to tell people is we hear about book burning. The Germans burned pornography, and rightfully so. I would burn pornography. Absolutely. The Allied Control Council Council burned textbooks. They actually fired teachers. I mean, it was absolutely, it was cultural genocide. It It was reprogramming. It was brainwashing on a scale that would make Orwell cringe. Well, well, they've done the same thing here, but they've done it through peaceable means, by buying, by producing our money, robbing us of our resources, and buying all of our media, and and destroying all of our classical knowledge and and replacing it with with Jewish propaganda. Well, it's easier to do it here, I think, in Germany. Bear in mind, it happened in Germany after 1945 by bare force of arms. You know, the German army was broken. Uh, I, you know, I take the position probably, and I've talked to former German Wehrmacht officers, of course, in their 80s now, and you know, some of them have told me that they would rather have gone on, in hindsight, 
they probably would rather have gone on fighting and gone down with some honor because certainly there was nothing to be gained by surrendering because they died anyway. They were killed anyway. Their culture was killed anyway. So well, I would love to get some of them on tape. I would love to get some of them recorded. Yeah, uh, but uh, uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, had I been a you know German soldier in May of 1945, I'm not convinced that uh, you know I would have been in favor of surrendering. Uh, uh, of course, I'm very idealistic and uh, take a different perspective. I have the benefit of knowing now, uh, you know, maybe some things that they didn't know then, but there's, there's a lot of assurances that were made. And, of course, what happened was their patents, were, their trademarks were stolen. The country was robbed, raped, and pillaged. Their countries were ethnically cleansed. Their women and children were raped. It's just horrendous what happened to that country. And, uh, you know, uh, and it all happened, you know, primarily why so-called the so-called arsenal of democracy stood by and participated. Well, well there's um, no doubt in my mind that we – perpetrated one of the greatest hate crimes in history at the behest of the Antichrist. Uh, I no, mean, but bear in mind, Bill, we did this to ourselves. The, well, well, absolutely. Uh, first in mind, it's come out not too terribly long ago that a great majority of, of the real British, we would call the white British, have Germanic DNA. In the United yes, States, I think that you know the second highest immigrant population in the United States was German. We did this to our kinsmen. Well, well we absolutely. Were, we waged this on our kinsmen because foreigners, aliens, were whispering and controlled this power, the strings of power. Well, that's Satan. That, that's the nature of yeah, Satan. Yeah, but, you know, the Germans had no designs outside of their stated, and bear in mind their, state, their designs and goals were clearly stated, and that was to restore what had been stolen. You know, bear in mind, a fraud was perpetrated upon the Germans. Woodrow Wilson issued his 19 points, and based on that, in World War I, the Germans entered into good faith discussions under the 19 points. Once entered, once the guns fell silent, they were in negotiations. Oh, no 19 points. Now it's uh, now that we've mobilized and you know, you've demobilized, either you, you basically surrender and let us rob, rape, and pillage you now, or we're going to march into the heartland of Germany. And of course, well, well that's when we became whores. That, that's what well, we became yeah, whores. I, I would submit that we became whores after the American Civil War. Well, well, yeah, that's that, that's a possibility too. But but we really sold ourselves out with Woodrow Wilson when the um, when his peace plan was not enforced, and and that that was a, a clearly yeah. traitorous act. And and Woodrow Wilson, if he had any honor at all would have made sure that his plan, which was offered on the basis of American might in Europe, that his plan was honored. All because England and France were broke. All he had to do was tell the French and the Brits, I'm pulling um, U.S. troops out, then you're on your own. And the Germans could easily have taken down what was left of the British and the French in 1918. Well, well Wilson well, Wilson was working for Samuel Untermeyer and Bernard Baruch at that time. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And see, there's always been, Bill, this cabal. You know, I, I call it the unseen cabal, but it is transparent because we all know that it's there. And it's a matter of getting people to acknowledge and not worry about being called names. You know, you can go down, just go to New York. You see the cabal. You can see it. Their names well, are well, shingles. 
Today they're in charge of the whole damn country. They're in the White House. That they, they, they own the media. They're in they're in L.A. They're in Hollywood. They produce all our movies. They produce all our These poor hippies who've been occupied Wall Street, they don't realize they're the biggest Trojan horse around right now. They don't realize it, but they are. Maybe they do. Their demands it. are all Bolshevik. They're, they're absolutely, yeah, absolutely a Trojan horse. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In, you know, it, it might, you know, it almost, you know, New York that Occupy Wall Street almost looks like you know what was Petrograd and St. Petersburg in 1917. Oakland definitely looks like it. <laughs> well, well, my own pursuit in life is is to tell the truth about Christianity and, and who the Antichrist really is, and and um, what well, once those scales are removed from your eyes, it's Christ, where all history makes sense and, and life is crystal clear. Well, my concern about Christianity is, and I'm sure you, you'll agree, and you, I've heard you talk about it, is you know Christianity going back further than what people realize has been uh, has been uh, taken over and bastardized, and now Christians walk around wanting to be uh, uh, wanting to be uh, uh, basically engage in Judaism and Talmudism. And, well, well, uh, that's what they're doing. You have, you have the likes of you have the likes of John Hagee, and he's essentially a rabbi. Uh, you know, you know, and uh, uh, such, and uh, it's it's inherently dangerous. It's inherently dangerous. You have this, you have this thing called APAC that essentially uh, takes engages in money laundering of U.S. taxpayer dollars. You know, you have you have this. You, 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 Israel is slated to get about three billion dollars a year each year in increases over the next three years, while you know programs for U.S. citizens are cut. We're borrowing money from the communist. Let me paint this out for you here, Bill. We borrow money from the communist Chinese to give aid to Israel, who then sends checks to APEC to lobby. Uh, hello? There's something right. wrong with that picture. Well, well there's, there are a lot of disconnects between reality and the American mind, and that's because of the control that the Jewish media has over the American mind. We will not be straight until people turn away from the screaming rabbi in their living room. That's right. Absolutely. Turn turn it off and throw the box out. And you know, if you know, if people don't take anything else away from anything I say tonight, you know, and when I talk about white people, if you have a child tomorrow, that child is born with about forty five grand in debt. And remember what I just told you: your government, controlled by these interests, borrow from the communist Chinese to give money to the Israelis, who then funnel them over to their lobbying group. To then keep that you know, going. I mean, and if that's if that is not reason enough to open up and kick these people out and take your country back, then I don't know what is. Not to mention, you know, a whole myriad of other reasons. You know, the lies and distortions. You know, you know, throughout uh, throughout history. Well, well, I mean, we could sit here all night and talk about those. Is, is there anything else? I, I know you were pressed for time this evening, and, and I really appreciate you coming on, and maybe we'll do this again soon. But is there, is there anything else that you would like to say about um, Adolf Hitler, World War II, Germany, um, the, the battles, the, the, um, the, you know, the, the misinformation that were fed concerning the state of, of Germany in, in World War II or, or anything like that? I, I certainly like. I know I was pressed for time because of some family commitments. I'd certainly, if if you certainly would allow, I'd like to come back and specifically talk about Poland and you know why you know the big the, the big the biggest the greatest lie the two greatest lies about Germany 
and World War II period is one, you know, that there were six million Jews killed in concentration camps during the uh, during the war. That's inherently inaccurate. I like to come back and talk about that, and I like to talk about and the fact that World War II began when the Germans invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. That is absolutely false, and I would like to, you know, talk about that at a on a, on a future program because. It's, uh, it's, it's rather, it's rather interesting when people really realize what Poland was, uh, was doing and the shenanigans Poland was doing causing trouble and the fact that it was actually Britain that declared war and the fact that the Poles were engaging in atrocious acts against German nationals in former German territories of, uh, of West Prussia. You know, the whole province of West Prussia was taken away from the Germans. But there was, you know, the German population was still there, uh, and uh, uh, and there were uh, cross-border incursions by Poles, and that had been going on even before September 1st, 1939. That had been going on. The Germans had been tolerating it, and uh, I certainly like to come back and, and and discuss that. And of course, it was Britain and France, and France actually reluctantly, France, the Brits had to actually drag the French into that. And it was Franklin D. Roosevelt that actually kept pushing and was engaging in a whispering campaign um, to uh, uh, get the British to issue this guarantee of uh, Poland's borders, but only against Germany. Bear in mind, Poland was invaded by the Soviet Union, too, but there was no guarantee of Poland's borders against the Soviet Union. And I sure would like to come back and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and discuss that as well. Well, right. That would be a wonderful discussion, mate, perhaps in um... – because in, in, in November, this war and the and the and the absolute animosity, and not by everybody in the world in the 30s, Bill. Everybody in the world did not hate the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler and Germany. It was only a select few cabal, and the reason why is Germany showed between January 30th, 1933, and by by January 1935, that a nation could one become self-sustaining did not have to rely on Judeo-middleman finance, and that just absolutely shook the system to its core foundation. And, and that's, to me, to, to me that's, that's indicative of an, a total disconnect among our people here in the 1930s to live through the Great Depression from 1929 forward and yet to watch the newsreels of a vibrant culturally healthy, um, economically sound Germany in 1936, and not wonder how that could be. What I tell people is, in January of 1933, bear in mind, uh, Hitler became chancellor on January 30th of 1933. Uh, Roosevelt became uh, president in March. Just a few, it wasn't, whole, you know, it wasn't that far apart, about a month, month and a half. Germany was in far better, far worse shape than the United States, yet Within 30 months, Germany was already recovering and was on its road, on the road to being a superpower. The United States and the Roosevelt did not actually get itself out of the out of it until it went on a war footing in 1941-42. And well, well America prints bonds. America prints bonds, sells them to the Jews on Wall Street. The Jews on Wall Street sell them to the Chinese at a profit, and and then. The Chinese hold our debt. The Jews make off of the money, and and we could just print the money, and and we could do what Germany did in 1933. 
And we can base our currency on sovereign currency based on the value of our people's labor. And there's, there's that's a whole other program. I'd love to come back and, and, and discuss it, and it, it, maybe we can draw people into even asking more questions beyond just you and I. And that's, that's my ultimate goal. I want to get people at, talking to people, talking to people, asking questions, and saying, hey, we need to look at what happened in Germany. You hear a lot of people talk about the German economic miracle of the post-World War II time under the Stooge Adenauer. Well, all that was was a bunch of, uh, you know, influxed uh, U.S. dollars. It was so bubbles. It was Jewish investment bubbles, right. just, just like right. they've done to China in the 1990s. The true German economic miracle was January 30th, 1933 to January 1935, because Germany did it, and they were essentially debt well, well, Poland and the German economy, and, and I'll put them on a slate for November and December, and that would be wonderful to have you here to talk about those. Very good. Well, I appreciate the time, Bill, and I look forward to talking to you again. Again, I feel like I've known you forever, and I hope to chat with you again, and I'll definitely be uh, I'll sending you some uh, items by email. Well, thank you, and I'll look forward to it, and, and I'll definitely look forward to talking to you again. This has been Rodney Martin of Worldview Foundations. It, it's WV, like in West Virginia, WVFoundations.org, all one word. Thank you, Rodney, and God bless. Thank you, Bill. Carolyn, I'm sorry Rodney didn't have enough time to really get involved in a three-way conversation, but thank you for joining me tonight. How are you doing? Well, hi, I'm doing fine, and uh, thanks for uh, welcoming me. I just thought I would call in so you didn't end the show. Um, I knew Rodney had to go, and uh, I didn't want to interrupt. You know, I mean, you guys were going like gangbusters. <laughs> and so I think I think you uh, agreed on everything. I didn't come up with – I didn't hear anything that you said. One of you didn't agree with the other, although maybe there are some smaller points somewhere. But um, – I don't want to keep other people from calling in. You know, I can just uh, listen or, you know, I I don't uh, – I could say a few things about – I'm kind of interested in this Dunkirk business, if you want to talk about that a little more. But if anybody else wants to, wants to ask a question of you, you know, following up on what uh, Rodney was saying or anything, uh, I don't want to stop that. Well, well, sure. If anybody that's listening wants to call in, we'll take calls from people that we, we're familiar with. I'm not going to take calls from trolls. Uh, I'll leave that at Cheryl's discretion. Um, Dunkirk, you know, it's the information that I got on Dunkirk before I had had the discussion with Jim Condit basically came from an, I think it was a John Kitsany article that ran in the Barnes Review some years ago. Oh. And I don't, I don't know if you're familiar well, with that. I have not seen that, but uh, in the articles that uh, Wilhelm Amann and I did uh, and published in the Barnes Review, uh, which are basically translation, which are translations of Hermann Giesler, which you you know about because you used them on your Mein Kampf program, um, <clears throat> and we added uh, quite a lot of commentary here and there, and you know background information and so on. But you know, one of them which I've got opened up in front of me here, uh, Hitler uh, is speaking to Giesler, according to Giesler, about Dunkirk, and he says some very interesting things, you know, uh, but people don't pay any attention to this kind of thing. They just dream up uh, their own reasons. And, of course, you know I also talked, had a little debate with Condit, and it was kind of a, people said it was it was good, but I thought it was kind of a disaster because, 
you can't call things like that a debate because all it is is, uh, is somebody, uh, like you say, with an agenda going around in circles, and, and as soon as he gets caught with his pants down, so to speak, you know, not having any answers or have his inf- any any way to respond to your to your facts, he changes the subject. He just changes the else. subject like it never happened. <laughs> yeah, it, it is yeah, funny, I mean, but that's ridiculous. That, that's it. The man is um, he, he's trained himself to do that, and and he clearly has an agenda and no care for the truth whatsoever. Well, overall, I think that uh, Dunkirk, and he wanted to get me into Dunkirk, but, you know, I wasn't prepared for that. And I knew it would take a bit of time, and we didn't have much time, and we hadn't, he hadn't answered my other questions, which is what the show was supposed to be about, or the debate about whether Hitler was a Jew or not. And this idea that Dunkirk is somehow going to prove that is ridiculous. So, um, so I refused to talk about it, and I'm glad I did, because, you know, that was just another way to get me to start saying things that I didn't have time to really do right. But now, um, overall, what, what Hitler is saying in this, in, in, you know, in De- according to Giesler, is that it was basically uh, a combination of the two reasons that are, that are given, sometimes one and sometimes the other. But it was a strategy decision, and it was also, a, um, I guess it would be called a political decision, diplomacy decision, uh, that played a part too, a big part, which is what you were saying, you know that, uh, and I think uh, Rodney was saying that. Well, Rodney was really saying that, that he that Hitler, um, uh, he knew he knew about Chamberlain. Chamberlain was still prime minister, right? Was he? Yes, I believe he was. Um. um no, no, of course he wasn't. No, well, I don't know. Now I'm now I'm confused here. I don't know why he brought up Chamberlain, but um, uh, I know, think he, when I did the original not, debate, it was I thought, a defeat. It was a defeat for the British. Whether Chamberlain or not doesn't matter. He brought that up, but I, I really can't speak to that. Um, he, uh, it, it was a defeat, and uh, he thought that the, the British would uh, decide to sue for peace. He hoped they would, because that was always his hope to have peace in the West, you know. And he had, Germany had control not only of France, but of Norway and, and the northern countries, you know, Belgium uh, and so on. So, um, Denmark. So, uh, it, 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 was not, it was not a stupid decision. It, um, and also, the, uh, he had reports from the generals that the Panzers were breaking down. They were worn out from what they had done already, and they needed time for repair. And they couldn't keep going, you know, right off, right off the bat. And there was also still threats from the French in coming up from the south and various things. And they really were not in the position of such strength as you, you know, as is portrayed later, like Hitler just made some kind of idiotic uh, decision not to press when he had everything going for him. Well, he didn't really have everything going for him. And, uh, uh, so uh, anyway, do you want to hear what you want to hear from what he said to according to Giesler, or should we just? Well, well, yes, I would like that. But first, I'd like to correct the record. Chamberlain was was the um, what was okay. the prime minister until May of 1940, and Dunkirk was May 10th, 1940. And and I was actually I, I remember that during the Condit debate, I thought Chamberlain was the prime minister when the Battle of Dunkirk occurred. 
but Churchill had just taken office. Yeah, because and, this was in June. Yeah, yes, it, Churchill had just taken office. West offensive, but it ended. It ended in uh, in June. Right. So, so, so I'm evidently Rodney may have been confused about that too tonight, but but um, yeah. Churchill was was the prime minister. Yeah. And and he had just taken and, office. Right. Now you know it was when 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 Hitler invaded Poland, uh, he, he thought that Churchill that Chamberlain was going to be, you know, agreeable because he had he had made those definite uh, statements or noises that way. Um, and then he suddenly changed his mind, and that's something else that I was talking about with uh, Wilf Hank, and that's what he says. He said he just suddenly changed his mind. It's like why? Because he was told to, he was ordered to. And, well, well, absolutely. Uh, and that threw everything off. Hmm? Uh, absolutely, he he was, and and you know Chamberlain and the English people, well, the English government must have known about the atrocities that the Poles were committing against ethnic Germans in, in Danzig in the former Prussian lands. Mm -hmm. They must have known it, and, and they must have well, known it. Well, they did Hitler. know it. I mean, it's known that they knew it. They, had, right. they even had a representative. They had a British, a British guy, a British diplomat went to even uh, Czechoslovakia. No, was it? Uh, yeah, Czechoslovakia before, uh, before the Poland thing in '38 and said uh, the Germans are being treated terribly, and this can't go on, and we need to have an immediate uh, decision to stop uh, the, the Czechoslovak government, uh, Benish, from doing what he's doing. And uh, so, no, Beck, Beck, and now I'm mixed up, uh, the, the foreign <laughs> minister Beck, um, from doing what he's doing, and... Uh, what happened? No, that was Poland. Now I am really getting mixed up. Yeah, I need I need to have notes in front of me. All these people, and I haven't talked about this for quite a while either. Um, but anyway, they they said this had to be done, and uh, and they, everybody agreed. But then they didn't do it. You know, they didn't really they didn't really do anything. And that was the other question: is why why did they all agree that certain things uh, were were wrong and needed to be done, but then they didn't go ahead and, and make it happen? So uh, Hitler was left doing it his way, you know, making it happen. So Churchill became well, prime anyway, minister. Uh, Churchill became prime minister on May 10th. He took office, and the the Battle of Dunkirk and and the defense and evacuation of the British and Allied forces from Europe occurred from May 26th to June 4th. Churchill had just yeah. taken office two weeks before Dunkirk. So Dunkirk was that early, in early June. Well, well, I'm just looking up real quick what what um what what Wikipedia is telling me, and that's what they're telling me, right? Just to get the date straight. I I can never keep these dates straight in my head. I'm sorry. It's just oh yeah, not, here it is. Uh, <laughs> not my area. Dunkirk operation. I've got it right here in the in the article. May 26th to June 4th. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. Uh, Hitler says, according to Giesler, quote, well, Giesler's reconstructing what he said, but, you know, he puts it in quotes. Uh, the opponent was actually decisively beaten in, in the north sector, pressed from the east and south by our fast-moving troops, cut off toward the west. Only the sea remained as the last open flight path. 
the mass of those primarily English forces was concentrated around Dunkirk on the Flemish Plains, which I remembered well from my World War time. Oh, I know my Dunkirk decision was described as a big mistake, not only by the circle of the so smart general staff, those know-it-alls and those with their so Christian feelings, thought it was my biggest stupidity not to have completely destroyed the already beaten British forces. And he says, various considerations kept me from doing so. First, the military reasons. The Flemish lowlands restrict tank operations basically to the roads. Long drawn-out battles with their own losses and the possible high breakdown of our tanks were to be expected. For further necessary operations toward the west and the south into France proper, I could not sacrifice one tank. But above all, we must not waste our strength and lose time. The enemy had been shocked. Now everything had to be done stroke by stroke. After listening to Runstedt, one of his, his uh, main uh, general out there, my inner circle of military advisors also shared that opinion. And it's known that Runstedt, that his top uh, staff, uh, agreed uh, not to push that. Uh, it was absolutely necessary, he says, to continue the attack to the west and south without any hesitation before the enemy succeeds in building up a strong defense along the Somme and the uh, Eisne uh, rivers. And I think he's speaking there about the French. Our follow-up thrust already met with strong resistance there. It also had to be assumed the English would send additional troops, assisted by the artillery support of their battleships, across the channel. They could not let France down as they did Poland. We had to attack toward the west. Paris and the northern and northern France had to be taken very fast. So now he's dealing with Paris now, uh, very fast. They didn't have that yet to make it impossible for the English to land additional troops. We also had to direct an offensive toward the south with the thrust behind the French fortifications. We had to enforce the final decision and thus bring the French campaign to a quick finish because there was another reason of a military political kind. I did not remain oriented to only one side. For a long time, I was listening, worried, toward the east. Well, he's always had the east on his mind. And then he says, uh, and did not a slight possibility of peace still exist, even though a vague one, which I might have obstructed by a pitiless defeat of the Dunkirk army? Uh, and then uh, Giesler says, Hitler was deliberating on rational grounds, as he was so often doing in the past years. He did not think only as a German, he thought as a European. He truly thought in the sense of a higher humanity, which he wanted to be realized within ethnically based unified societies. And, and that comes out so often in the pages of Mein Kampf. That is so in tune with things in Mein Kampf that Hitler wrote years before Dunkirk. Yes. It, it, in, in other words, I'm trying to say that Adolf Hitler's reasoning, according to witnesses, now this is Hermann Giesler, is consistent with what he wrote years before Dunkirk. And, and the same thing with the the last appeal to reason. But where we see a consistent yeah. picture of this man's reasoning, he couldn't have been a, a Rothschild plant. He couldn't have been yeah. a, a, um, a sellout or a traitor to his office. But was that consistent reasoning throughout a, a ten-year period? Uh, Hitler was always consistent. You know, consistency runs through his his life work, his his speeches. He didn't do much writing. He wrote, uh, but he wrote his speeches. But 
And and that so, proves his like, sincerity. Oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean and he was up front too. And these others were all like snakes in the grass in comparison. Well well absolutely. Well, then, and they try to project their tactics and, and their own um personalities on Adolf Hitler. Well, exactly. Well they want to put the blame on him. Absolutely. When, when they're the ones who are to blame for everything that happened. Well, well, no doubt. I, I believe that Jim Condit wants to turn Adolf Hitler into the Jew that everybody's allowed to hate so that all the other Jews are left off the hook for their crimes. And I don't that, understand why Jim Condit uh, cares, uh, but I think that some, uh, like I've said before, <clears throat> I think that some of these Polish Catholics got to him. Uh, and, I don't mean got to him like secretly, but I mean, you know, we're talking to him and uh, they wanted him to put this stuff out because he sort of had, I guess, a good reputation or something, or he had some reputation with some people. And uh, he's po- he's Catholic, very much so, and they all want to, uh, they, they want to do in Hitler for some reason. Well, I can well, well, as long as I'm alive, there's a lot of people in the world that are going to have to hear that Jim Condit's a fraud. Well, he's stupid. I think he. Well, people tell me he's not stupid. Well, I he, when he talks about this stuff, he he appears stupid to me. And by the way, <clears throat> so I don't appear too stupid. Um, <clears throat> it's clear in my mind now that yeah, Benish is Czechoslovakia, and Czech yes. is Pope. <laughs> yes, I'm sometimes sorry. I'm saying I, I these things all of a sudden. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that right? <laughs> yes, Edward Benish is Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And uh, and they were both. Neither one of them would cooperate. And they both had England, uh, um, you know, uh, advising them. And they both went to England. In, in their once Hitler moved in to their countries, and they both took off for England and set up their uh, governments in exile. So and then after the war, they were both rewarded. After the the Allied victory, they were both. Highly rewarded with, uh, I don't know if Beck was still alive, but um, <clears throat> those two countries, Benish was, he he was around for a long time. Yes, uh, he was, into the 60s. With, uh, with all that German territory <laughs> that they got. So that's what they wanted to begin with, and they got it by hanging in with the with the Allies. So. Well, well, the revelation says, who can fight with the beast, right? I, I mean, it. That that's part of um it, it's all part of a greater plan, but we're going to prevail in the end. I have no doubt. Well, it, that's uh, that's an exciting thought. If you have to have uh, you know uh, whether we prevail or not, I would still keep at it. But uh, it's nice to think that uh, that some people are positive and that may be true that we are certainly certain to prevail. But I don't think we can sit back and rest on that. You know, oh, no, hell no. Oh, we're going to prevail in the end, so we'll let God do it. Uh, I don't think if, that's if I thought, we, If I thought they had that attitude, that, I, would, I, know. I, I wouldn't have 18 websites, right, <laughs> and yeah, two know. programs a week. I know, but I'm I'm not speaking about you, but, you know, a few other – I hope that other people uh, – there are people who do think that. They, they say, well, uh, it's all in God's hands. They're, they're not necessarily Christian identity, They're you know, but Christians who will say, well, um, it's all in God's hand. It's God's plan. And so what's the point of us? Uh, we don't know what it is. So, uh, you know, and that gives them some peace, I guess, but it doesn't make them any help in the battle. 
Well, maybe as long as they're not a hindrance, but I think they they end up being a hindrance. Well, it, it's um, it, it's a long uphill road, right? That that's the way I look at it. And and if we don't get off our asses and start climbing it today, we're never going to make it. And and that's the attitude we should all have. Yeah, we should. We should all say what you know. What what can I do? Um, um, well, well, every morning we should wake up and think about what we could do to advance the cause of our race and and to help our racial kindred. And, and oh, that would make. You more. I think we that, have to we have to look at I look at it that way more and more. Um, the the big picture is our race, and that fits in perfectly with CI. And uh, we we just we need to uh, we need to realize that uh, our race is is under tremendous tremendous threat and stress and difficulty, um, and we have to make huge changes in our lifestyles and our way of uh, thinking about um, what our life should be all about. And it's easy for me to talk, I guess, now that I'm an older person, and I, you know, <laughs> we weren't going to squeal on you. all my things, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I realized I made that point before that that I think last last week. That you know, young people have a lot of uh, desires and feelings and things they want to do, and they're turned on to things that you know that uh, we might rather they weren't. But uh, uh, I guess everybody has to go through a certain amount of experiences. You can't you can't just put everybody in a box and not let them live. And unfortunately, but you know, here's a theme. Here's something that I like, and uh, I hope we're going to talk about this on my program two weeks. Two week, a week from tomorrow, not, not I mean from Monday, not Monday, but the following Monday, uh, uh, which um, and is how they did it and how they treated the youth in Germany uh, during under uh, National Socialism, and it was it was all uh, the youth was so different and they were mostly all sold on everything and they weren't being so hideously indoctrinated that is the way they uh, want to portray it. Because it was all uh, they had, it was all very healthy, and they they were involved with their with their uh, elders, you know, and with all the people were were together. Uh, they didn't have this this youth culture that was estranged from the adults and and kids estranged from their parents. And and look at uh, Rodney with his four kids. Uh, it's such a great example that he homeschools them. And he does a lot of things with them, and uh, you know you can do it. I mean, it can be done. You, you don't have to teach your kids uh, Christian fundamentalism in such a way that they, they're going to rebel. I mean, you know, you just uh, have to um, supervise their education to some degree, and that's what we're really talking about is the education. But I think I think the way they, they did their education in the Third Reich and uh, the way the, uh, the younger generation uh, was so happy to be a part of it is just, it's just so inspiring. It shows what can be done. Well, they had good understanding of, of the youth. And, of course, Germany was a very hetero, uh, uh, racial, uh, heterogeneous society. Uh, and they had a culture that was that everybody understood. And what the problem with the United States that um, I bring up, maybe I'm too negative about the United States, you're, you know, is that, and I think Rodney brought this up tonight, is that it's already so broken up 
Um, and we don't have a single, we don't have anything to well, well, if we learn to take care of each other, and, and if we learn where to do our business and who to do it with, that then we, we will begin to magnify our own people. I, I mean, it's cause and effect. If you want to take your money and go to a Korean store or, or to an Egyptian gas station because it's close, because you save yeah. a nickel. They got a penny you, cheaper on the gas or something. You, you don't deserve your own livelihood. Right. You're, you're a sellout. You don't deserve your own livelihood. Go five miles out of your way to the gas station owned by the white guy. Go three blocks out oh. of your way to the delicatessen owned by the white guy. Well, you're so right. You're so right. We we have been, uh, and, and a, we, you know, oh. say this over and over again, and that's what you're right. We need to throw out the darn TV. We got to quit listening to these voices. To, these, right. uh, to this uh, to this information that we get all the time, it's, people think they can they can uh, filter stuff out. I don't think we're that good at filtering things out. When you hear all that a lot, um, you you buy into some of it. You can't help it because it just well, sounds so used to hearing it. It sounds familiar, or you know, it sounds right. If it's something like that, it makes it it makes you not critical enough of it or not feel realize how alien it is and, and people become desensitized to the offensive the, yeah. the talk about the constant talk about sex bodily functions ex excrement everything that the jews talk about on that television has desensitized us to all forms of of morality if you just look at what was on television in the 50s. And I realize it was stupid and, and our country was in trouble in the 50s already. It was but, innocent, but though. Not it, like it, now. It, and and, if, and or in the, even in the 60s. And then you see what we have now. Well, we're supposed to have gotten so much more sophisticated or something. Uh, well, well you know. Tacitus, in the first century A.D., Tacitus wrote about the debauchery in Rome and how the people called it modern and up-to-date. Mm -hmm. and, and it's yeah. true. And Paul of Tarsus also wrote about that same debauchery. So if you go read Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about women sleeping with women and men sleeping with men and doing unseemly things with each other, you get a perfect picture of what Tacitus was talking about when he wrote about immorality being called up-to-date and modern. And it's the same line of crap the Jews used mm -hmm. in the 20th century to push the same perverted, immoral agenda. That's right. It, it's the you same know, thing all over again. It, it's actually, know, nobody puts this stuff better than you do. I mean, I don't think because uh, you, you're not at all hard to follow, and uh, you when you say these things, it's so clear. Um, and uh, you just you need to get a bigger. Uh, you need to get a bigger audience. I said that last time. Uh, you have a big big audience, but I, I'd like you to have a huge audience. <laughs> well, um, Chris, thank you. And <laughs> Chris Degeny is getting about uh, 700 you know, it, visits It really today. can be simple. We do have to simplify it. Sometimes maybe I kind of complicate it when I, I look at uh, the problems. I say, well, but look at this and look at that. And then you'll just say, well, we just need to uh, – Quit watching that and listening to that, and we need to go be loyal to our own people and go to our own, go to their stores and go to their businesses and hire them and so on. 
Well, uh, that's, that's, that's it. People ask me, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? It's the little things that we do every day that add up. What can you do? Stop going to Hajiville for your newspaper. Go find a store that a, that a white guy has that sells newspapers. That's what you could do. And, and if a thousand people did that, and, and then they they professed to their friends and, and relatives that that's what they should be doing, white people would have jobs again. And and and, yeah. and the, the Indians and the dot heads and, and the Chinese, that they'd stop coming here, that they'd have to leave. The Mexicans would have to go home. Well, we, we have to also convince, convince our people that uh, that they don't need to, to care about uh, others, uh, other people other than whites. I mean, because most of them, most of ordinary uh, white Americans, say, and white Europeans, too, still have all this uh, feel sorry for people. Still, you know, I don't think we're ever going to, you know, here's another thing I don't, I don't go along with. Saying that whites are, are a minority and we should just be asking for our minority rights, <laughs> asking for our rights and so on, trying to be equal, have what blacks have, have what uh, Indians have, have what uh, mestizos have, uh, Chinese have, whoever Jews have. You know, well, how come well, we're getting the we're getting the brush and, and they're getting everything? Well, I think that's the wrong way to go because this is our place and we should own it. We should not be asking for some uh, equal. Uh, position along with all the rest of them. Uh, maybe I, I don't know. I wonder. If you, I would like to hear other people's opinions on that because sometimes maybe I go. Uh, I, I'm trying. I'm demanding things that are impossible. But I, I think that we should say, you know, we don't care uh, how what these people's problems are. Uh, we're only focused on ourselves and our our racial group. And our our Christian uh, white group, and we we really are not going to give a darn. Uh, but most most Americans feel like they still have to look after these other people, like they're they're minorities and they don't have what we have. Well, they don't because they don't have our intelligence and our abilities, and they're never going to have it. They're always going to be just uh, taking taking from us. Well, well, culture is a racial construct. We proved it in Rome. We, we proved it in, in, in the Gothic era in Germany, the era of Gothic architecture and, and the, the Middle Ages. What well, we proved it in, in um, 16th century Holland, 17th century England. Culture is a racial construct. And race, our race has created all the world's great cultures, and they've all been destroyed through... The, the war and, and multiculturalism and, and diversity and, and mass immigration, whether by force or, or by admittance, every great white culture, every great white empire from Persia to Egypt to Syria, Babylon, they were all great white empires. They were not brown empires in, in ancient Mesopotamia. And, and they've all you been know, destroyed through these ideas of multiculturalism. They they just laugh at me. I mean, they're convinced that that's not possible. They just laugh at you. Uh, um, so uh, you know, pe- people think they think they know. They think that everything is set in stone, and and uh, and there's no way that these these 
Well, well, that's because they've been watching the Jewish History Channel. They've been watching the Jewish History Channel. They've been watching all these sand niggers playing roles that they never fulfilled in history. That they've been watching all these Arab people. If you want to imagine that Arabs built the Hanging Towers of Babylon, the great ziggurats of ancient Sumer, the great pyramids, why the hell haven't they done anything the last 3,000 years? Well, okay, but okay, answer this, Bill, because here's what this this guy Russ always says: um, How can you believe that uh, that in, in the the in the Semite land, let's say you know in the middle Middle East and so on, that back then in Egypt and so on, they had blonde haired, uh, white skinned what he says, blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, white skinned people. Uh, what a joke! What a what? How ridiculous is that? They well, well, there's all possible. kinds of archaeological evidence. Hmm? There's all kinds of archaeological evidence. I, I have ancient Sumerian inscriptions. I could pull out a book right now and read off that describe people with eyes like lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli was blue. Uh, yeah. Okay. Then and there's well, all wasn't, kinds wasn't of. Wasn't the climate different? Well, I, I thought it was well, well, possible because the climate was different. The land was much lusher than it was now. These descriptions of shepherds with great flocks in, in the, what we know today as the deserts of Arabia, these people weren't oh, on yeah. kind of, they weren't yeah. on LSD when they when they took all of the hours it takes to inscribe in, in granite. These accounts that these people took, they were not hippies on drugs seeing things that weren't there, that they were actually describing the culture at the time. It was a much lusher and, and much more fertile, that's why they called it the Fertile Crescent, much more fertile area 2,000 years ago. And that, and, therefore, it wouldn't have been as hot. Um, it would have been a little more moderate, right? Right, right. The temperature was, I mean, the, the climate was more watery, but it wasn't hot, and, and it was a lot easier to get along then than it is now. Yeah, yes, it, yeah. it was it, it was more like the American Southwest than it was like New England, but still the land clearly supported a, a vast agrarian pastoral culture. Yes, and if you have intelligence, you can make best the best use of what you have and make it do a lot of things that non-intelligent people can't make it do. Well, well, our people have built gardens in the desert. I mean, look at Texas and, and what we've done with it and, and, and the farming and, and the agriculture that goes on. In, in a hospitably dry climate that's prone to tornadoes, that's lacking water, and, and look at what we've done with, with um, parts of New Mexico and Arizona and, and Utah. But which which the the squat monsters that inhabited it before us never did. That they never did anything like we've done there. That they've never made the lush paradises out out of Nevada and Colorado that we've managed to do as a people, because culture is a racial construct. Well, I think that uh, Adolf Hitler, going back to him, I think. Uh... He he believed that, and uh, in a book by Otto Wagner, who gave a lot of his reminiscences of he spent a lot of time with Hitler during uh, oh, 29, 30, 31, up until 33, <clears throat> and um, he was uh, one of his economic experts that was working on what they were going to do, you know, when they got got into power, 
and uh in some in in a chapter he was talking about Hitler um at this museum where they were always traveling around and tra- traveling around Germany and you know campaigning and so on and and uh, they were at this museum and anyway Hitler Hitler gave a long long talk and he it wasn't only one time he talked about this about the ice age the ice ages and a particular ice age where you know people all came down south and then you know they had their civilizations in the south and then they you know moved back up as the ice melted and so on and and this was over thousands of years you know, well, well he, the the, the, the archaeology great concept of all that the, the archaeology does not support an an ancient white culture great white culture in the north the archaeology is way too scant for that and if we built all these magnificent things in the South 4,000 years ago, how come we have no magnificent edifices in the North from seven and 8,000 years ago? There's no, there's, no, there's no support for that story of a northern origin of our people. It's a pagan story that falls apart very quickly when one looks not only at the archaeological record, but the historical and the linguistic record also. That the uh, our okay. origin is in um, the ancient Levant and, and, and ancient Mesopotamia. So when you say origin, you mean that we actually originated there. We didn't, uh, we weren't moving down and moving up and moving around. No, there's there, there's no records of that, right? And and there's certainly no archaeology that supports well, this. Okay. There, there is, you see, there's a huge gap. There is archaeology of that that the, there's scant traces, like the 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 um the Cro Magnon man, right? The the cave paintings in France uh, of cults, some sort of seemingly intelligent culture in Europe, perhaps thirty thousand years ago. But there's a huge gap in the record. And all of the historical remnants of, of our, the, the past of the current day Europeans only takes us back as far as 7,000 years ago in, in ancient Mesopotamia. Okay. So, so that's why I believe the biblical record, not only for that reason, but because the Sumerian inscriptions, the, the Greek myths, the Roman myths, the, the Babylonian and, and Akkadian and Egyptian myths, all fairly, pr- pretty much agree or, or have many similarities with the biblical record. And, and that's well, why was I... There, was there a very cold uh, period in the north... Um, Four thousand years ago, or well, well, yes, there was, and 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 th- there was an ice age. Oh, it wasn't very inhabitable. Not at all, and even the Greeks up until two thousand years ago, that the Greeks could hardly imagine Strabo and Diodorus Siculus, for instance, could hardly imagine people living north of the Danube because of the inhospitable cold. Tat- I- I'm sorry, Herodotus writing about 450 B.C. Herodotus actually visited parts of the Danube in person and wrote about them. And he said that north of the Danube, the land was barren, except for a couple of nomadic tribes. You know, there is so much re-education that needs to take place. It's terrible. 
You know, now here's another thing though that comes Well, the Jews have taken classical education. The things that I quote, that, that, you know, when I quote Strabo, Diodorus, Aeschylus, the, the, the tragic poets, whatever, the, the, the epic poets, the, the, the elegaic poets, when, when I quote those things, I'm not really that bright a guy. It, it's just that I've actually read those things. 200 years ago, all educated men read those things. That's right. That is right. I mean, it's terrible what our educate what has we we have no idea how inferior we are to people, you know, between two hundred and a thousand years ago. Terrible. No uh, doubt. I no, mean, no uh, doubt. Yeah. in uh, previous to uh, forty uh, in the thirties, uh, let's say, you know, eight, late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds, they, they had. Not now they weren't all educated like this, but if you really got your your uh, what would be equivalent to a high school education, you got your gymnasium education. It was a fabulous education. You well, learned well, Greek right. and Latin, and you learned all kinds of history, and you learned all the classics, and and uh, you know you and you you learned it in a way that you remembered it. You really knew it, you know. You I mean unless you just didn't want to remember it, but I mean not like today. We we have all this in our higher education. The students are uh, taking tests and finding ways to pass the test one way or another through all kinds of cheating and so on. And and then they, they don't then they forget it all because they didn't really learn anything. Well, well Benjamin Franklin enough. wrote Benjamin Franklin wrote about the the, um, the difficulty of learning Greek and and how he studied Greek and Latin. Thomas Jefferson studied Greek and Latin. James Madison. He studied for, for the for, for the clergy, and and he studied Greek and Hebrew, and and he was an, an expert at Old Testament, the, the Old Testament and Hebrew, and he's the man primarily responsible for for writing the Constitution and and adding along with George Mason and making sure the Bill of Rights was added to it, and and these men read Plutarch, they quoted Strabo. Mm -hmm. And they had beautiful handwriting. <laughs> I mean, well, well, everything was so was so elegant and learned, and uh, we're, we're such baboons. I mean, really, just stupid. Well, baboons. well, we are. We become in this Judaized society. We have That's become right. decadent and and unlearned, and and like you said, stooges. It, it, well, it's we, incredible. We were talking the other day. You know, um, I was I was talking about how terrible it was that people. Uh, young people don't want to read. You have to show them pictures and show them uh, videos, and uh, so people are doing that. Say, well, we got to do the videos, and I'm, there's nothing wrong with that. But to say that uh, we can't expect our people to read, uh, I think that's a big mistake. Uh, well, that's one thing I like about Tom Sunick. He's always trying to, but the way he goes about it sounds a little snooty. But, but uh, you know, to he wants he wants his uh, his young people that listen to them or whatever, younger people, to read and read books and so on and um, and not just be on the Internet. Well, uh, you know, it, we do need – we need to work on that, too, on having them well, have – Well, reading really – Everybody doesn't have to have a fantastic education. Uh, no, I don't think so. Reading really assists your ability to concentrate. And I've noticed, you know, that my, my own reading is a tenth of what it was three years ago. Well, well, reading off the Internet all the time, 
you're never really concentrating on anything okay. on, on on any um at, at any depth on any issue you're getting all this surface stuff and these images just flash by all the time it's it's not a lot better than watching television and and, no. and it's there's it nothing better, better than it's interactive and you're you're in control but uh so it, it's it's a lot better than television but it still has you know, I notice, and I'm like you. I spend so much time on the internet. I don't read what I should uh, and what I want to. But when I do go and and I go to where I like to read, and I sit down uh, with my with a book, it's like, oh, it feels so good. And I think, well, why is it that I learn more from books than I do from? You know, I do. I mean, I, well, I get well, all kinds of ideas. I don't have to, even just reading a, a, for a little bit. Um, it's just, it's different. It's so much better. And so Sunak is right when he tries to get people to, these young people. Well, to well right. And people don't have to read War and Peace every day. I mean, one chapter no. in a book a night. You know, five, six, yeah. eight, ten pages a night. It, it takes 15 minutes for me to read ten pages in, in the average book. It, it's it, it's not a huge monumental task. Yeah, on the Internet, what you feel it feels good because you can get a lot of information fast. You can get what information you're looking for. Right, you know, but do you, you master find this, You can find that, but at the same time, it's it's a totally different process to to read a book where where somebody has put together a whole argument that they are going through, you know, and uh, the books are you just can't find you well, and we, we, you've already said it. I mean, you said it. It's just we need to do that. So I don't think that we should just cater to this uh, this video business too much. However, you want to reach people too. So, well, well, well right. and, and we we have to. The, the best way to reach them is through the media. But I would encourage everybody read my papers. My my papers get the the things that I've actually written get about well, one tenth the traffic that my podcasts usually get. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's. Yeah. Well, which is just nuts as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it, it's an, And I don't spend enough time reading myself, but people should make every effort to read at least a few chapters in a book a week. You, you'll be um, done with the book before you know it. And, and that may not seem like a lot, but it's better than not reading at all. And, and if you could read two books a year that way, it, it's a lot better than not reading at all. It, it's becoming a lost art. It, it's really sad. My, yeah, my, well, we're losing we're losing way too much, and we've got to stop. We've got to stop all this loss. It's just uh, um, can't go on. It has to stop right now, right here. <laughs> Draw right. the line. <laughs> well, well, I want to thank you for being here. I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't know how long we. I'll talk for as long as you want, but <laughs> no, we. You know, I I really don't have uh, anything more to say. Okay. Well, well, I want to thank you for being here, Carolyn. And, okay, and it's, you're, you're very appreciated. Thank you for your for your good show tonight. Yeah. Yes, Rodney was a pleasure having on. I, I hope to have him on again soon. And, and I really like to talk about the German economy. And and Poland's a good topic because it's very it, it's very misunderstood. The German relationship with Poland it is all we get is the Jewish propaganda, and it's incredible. With that, I'll be here next Friday night with Mark, Chapter 8, and next Saturday's program will I, I will announce during the week. I will probably cover one of my papers perhaps next Saturday. Maybe I'm thinking about um, my Phoenician's paper or, or Trojan Roman Judah. 
and, and I would like to expound on that and, and get them all into podcasts. I hope this week to have my Revelation book completed and be able to order my first sample copy of it. And, and if I can do that this week, next week, Christ Reich, my Revelation commentary will be available. I pray. That's my goal right now. And and thank you all for listening, and praise Yahweh. I will see you next Friday. Good night.